0: Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics. Treatment for varicose veins and spider veins. Also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor vein and aesthetics.com.
1: It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. It's been two years since the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. We all remember that horrifying day in our own way what we were doing when we first became aware of it, Uh, when over hours a mob of uh, Donald Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol trying to overturn the presidential election results. And I don't know about you, I still get choked up recalling that day two years ago, Um, similarly to the way I get choked up uh, recalling the attack on 9-11. Let's take stock of this momentous, infamous anniversary uh, with Donna Hoffman, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. Hello, Donna.
2: Hi, Ben.
1: What are your reflections um, on this ominous anniversary?
2: Well, Ben, if you recall, you and I were on uh, the radio show the day after um, the insurrection occurred, Indeed. as we were kind of going through um, the things that happened on that day that I think had all of us reeling in in many ways, in that... Um, we were learning about a lot. Of, many of us watched it in real time. I know I certainly did, as somebody who is interested in, in presidential elections, for example, and the processes there. Um, but we saw a lot of things that you know people don't expect to see happen in the United States of America. You you expect maybe to see them in uh, Latin American dictatorships of the seventies, for example, but not here. And and so in reflecting on that day, in some ways, it seems like it was uh, really a long time ago. In other ways i think it seems like it it wasn't um that that far removed from our experience uh at all and you know today we're watching in the house of representatives of course uh the struggle that republicans are having even doing a a pretty it's a major procedural thing but in the past these votes have, have for speaker um have been party line votes and and the votes are counted before uh, but, you know, in reflecting on uh, what happened two years ago, one of the things that strikes me is that you can really draw a straight line from January 6th of 2021 to um, January 3rd, 4th, and 5th, and 6th of, of this mm. week um, in just the um, the chaos that is um, encompassing much of American politics. Many of the norms that for long periods of time we have expected to be held um, have not been. And, you know, this is one of the challenges of January 6th and the things that have happened later. Um, you know, the peaceful transition of power is expected. Uh, it was a norm. That norm was violated for the first time ever in, uh, in 2021. And we had seen norms being violated before that, of course, in the presidency in particular. We have seen them being violated now. The speaker vote, for example, you know, typically is a straight party line vote. And in years past, recent years past, when uh, a partisan member has defected, um, oftentimes they get their committee assignments taken away from them um, or something to that effect. It, these are things that you – this is the dirty laundry that a party does not want to air in public, and that is what we're seeing today with the Republican uh, conference in the House. And many of the um, uh, grievances that um, the House Freedom Caucus has Relate to not wanting to accept uh, the norms and procedures of American politics.
1: Yeah, uh, that, that's so interesting. Drawing the line from January sixth, two years ago, to the present day, and I see that continuum that you're building there. That uh, and it, it, it makes sense. Um, it, it's logical uh, that this is uh, where we are today. But I want to go back a little bit on that line to the midterms. Uh, many election deniers lost in the election. How much comfort uh, should those of us worried about uh, the state of our democracy take in that?
2: Well, we should take some comfort from this. The, um, the way that the um, 2022 midterms uh, went forward, uh, where we saw in key swing states where election denialism was made um, a central factor, those election deniers lost. And I should add here, those were races in which those uh the the offices have some um responsibility for election administration in those states. You know, so for example, we could talk about house races across the United States where you had Republican House members who did not vote to Um, uh, that Joe Biden legitimately won the election on January 6th, even after the insurrection, many of them got elected, got reelected, because it wasn't a central issue, and they don't have a, a, a central role to play in election administration. But when push came to shove in November of 2022, in those key places in those key races where election denialism was really central those people did loss now lose i'm sorry uh again that's kind of cold comfort because that was really very conditional um and so for 2024 obviously a presidential election year where we already know that donald trump is a a declared candidacy to run for the republican nomination again one of the dangers for the American public is that we forget that democracy is fragile and that democracy requires constant attention. So, you know, it is a cliche to say the next election will be the most important one in your lifetime, but that really is true. It always has been true, I think, uh, because the things that happen on that day can have an enormous impact on what happens going forward.
1: Yeah, and we have just a couple minutes left, Donna, and I wanted to get to a number of points uh, before our time runs out. Uh, Congress passed legislation to reform the way the Electoral College counts votes uh, for for presidents. Um, How far does that go, in your view, in protecting uh, from similar threats to what we saw two years ago?
2: Well, it clarifies some of the things that um, some people fought in the original act were open to interpretation which, you know, really weren't, but um, clarifies that the, the vice presidential role, for example, being merely ceremonial. Um, one of the more important aspects, uh, you know, is that um, they have tried to cut down on the competing slates of electors coming from states that could come in, because that is in the aftermath uh, of January 6th, something that we saw that we didn't quite see on January 6th that that behind the scenes, uh, there was mm-hmm. much work trying to be done by Republicans to get alternate slates of electors um, uh, in the in the mix. Um, and then for January 6th itself, the electoral count reforms. Um, make it more difficult for the objections in the House and the Senate, whereas one member from each of the chambers had to start that process. um, Now it would be many more. It would be one-fifth in that regard. And so that cuts down on some of that. But if we learn nothing from January 6th and the investigation of it since then is the multiple-pronged ways in which Uh, supporters of Donald Trump sought to ensure that he would stay in office. It wasn't any one thing. So this is just one avenue that has been clarified. Um, There's still lots of nefariousness potentially that could go forward.
1: Mm -hmm. In the final minute here, um, on the heels of last week's sentencing of two men convicted of plotting uh, to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer I wanted to switch to domestic terrorism at the end here. That state's attorney general says domestic terrorism is, quote, one of the biggest existential threats facing the U.S. Do you agree? And are we in a position uh, to meet that challenge?
2: Um, I would agree. Uh, the FBI would agree. The FBI even had domestic terrorism on there. Um, radar screen well before January 6. You know we can go back to the mid 90s when the Oklahoma City uh, federal building was blown up. That was an act of domestic terrorism. These militia groups, these white supremacist groups, have long been on the radar um, of various entities in law enforcement, both at the state level and at the federal level. Um, it's not, uh, you know, again, this is a long-standing problem, and um, it is a difficult problem to uh, correct to police in an open and free society like ours, and it is a problem that we will uh, continue to encounter going forward.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Donna, in just 20 seconds, what will you be watching in 2023 in these regards?
2: Well, we um, know that the January 6th Select Committee has uh, sunset Uh, with the end of the 117th Congress, but we know that they had criminal referrals uh, that they recommended to the Department of Justice. The wheels of justice sometimes turn more slowly than people would like, but we know the Department of Justice is continuing um, these investigations on multiple fronts, both related to Uh, The January 6th insurrection but also related to Donald Trump's mishandling of classified documentation, for example, we have a special (laughs) counsel that has been appointed Mm -hmm. there, and these and grand juries that we think are going forward and these things aren't always um, open in the initial stages of them. Uh, But we will know what the results of those are and how those are proceeding at some point, um, I would think, in the next year. We still have um, ongoing trials of uh, insurrectionists from January 6th continuing as well. So the wheels of justice sometimes turn more slowly than we would like, but let's uh, keep watching to make sure that they do turn.
1: Donna, Donna Hoffman, sure glad you're there with your analysis. Professor of Political Science at the University of Northern Iowa. Take care, Donna. Thank you, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River Uh, in the first week of 2023. Quick conversations to end uh, this news week, uh, touching on some topics we didn't get to otherwise uh, uh, in our talk shows uh, this week. Now, throughout this hour of quick conversations, uh, uh, several issues in the news uh, carrying over from 2022 into this year, including medical marijuana. Iowa's medical cannabis program is rapidly growing Joining us uh, to tell us more, Lynn Ta, a reporter with Axios Des Moines, who's been covering this issue. Hi, Lynn.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: It's uh, so interesting in your reporting to, to see really how much growth we have seen in Iowa. Uh, tell us.
3: Yeah, it's basically just exploded here in the state. So especially in the last year, comparing 2021 to 2022, um, nearly... Everything has doubled in all facets of Iowa's medical cannabidiol uh, industry. so everything from sales that's you know, about half a million last year um, shot up to one million dollars in annual sales for dispensaries um, up in 2022 um, the number of doctors and practitioners who are um, issue who are helping to issue uh, medical marijuana licenses. Um, everything from visits. You know, people are, are doubling their visits to the di- different dispensaries in the state. So so really, this is a, an industry that's growing right now in Iowa. Mm-hmm.
1: Lynn, recap for us what happened last year in the state policy-wise in, in terms of changes to spur the growth you just described.
3: Yeah. So in 2020, um, Governor Kim Reynolds uh, signed signed on to allow to expand the state's medical cannabidiol program. And so, when that program originally started, if you remember, it really only allowed CBD and only allowed certain patients uh, with conditions to be able to um, get CBD, so it's mostly for seizures and epilepsy, and they capped the THC levels to 3%, so really a, a very minute number of Iowans were able to get access to that. Um, But in 2020, it kind of, you know, most people didn't notice this, but the governor had signed on to get rid of the THC cap and to expand the number of qualifying conditions for people, which meant, you know, one of the conditions was like chronic pain, which is now the number one reason that um, people state for needing, uh, needing a prescription. And so really it, it kind of slowly and gradually exploded and, you know, thanks to some branding, I'd say also from dispensaries who are going out there and saying, um, "Hey, <laughs> medical marijuana is actually legal in Iowa." You know, there's no THC cap. This is the same type of product that you're going to see in Colorado or in some other states. Uh, just maybe a little bit more expensive, but you know, you're you're able to go, you know, get a get a doctor's appointment or get a telehealth appointment. Um, go and apply for a license, and then just walk into a dispensary and, and pick something out.
1: So Lynn, in, in practical terms, for an Iowan seeking uh, medical cannabis for chronic pain or otherwise, what's the difference between getting it in Iowa or just, you know, hopping in the car, taking a road trip to Illinois, and, you know, some of other surrounding states are, are loosening, loosening their cannabis laws as well?
3: Yeah, well, the state is definitely a step behind when it comes to the accessibility of medical marijuana. Um, So here in the state, if you're wanting to get access to it, you know, you still need to get a prescription from a doctor. I'd say, you know, just talking with a few different people, a lot of their typical family doctors or primary care doctors are still a bit wary about prescribing it. So, you know, like what I have done personally for a story just exploring this is there's different telehealth um, specific doctors for this, but that costs about like a hundred dollars to do. And then, and then there's a barrier of the license, right? So it's a hundred dollars a year um, that you have to pay to the Iowa department of public health. So, you know, right there, you're already about out $200 then you have to go to the dispensary There's only dispensaries in the major cities in the state. So if you live in a rural area, you're going to have to drive. Um, It's still a bit more expensive in Iowa to buy it than in comparison to a state that has recreational marijuana. So, um, you know, but the difference is, I suppose, if you're an Iowan who's wanting to drive, you know, you could easily drive (laughs) to Illinois to another state, you know, go into a dispensary, kind of pick out and get whatever you want. Um, but then you've got the risk factor of driving back, getting yeah. pulled over or, you know, getting arrested for illegal possession.
1: Yeah. Uh, quickly, before we say goodbye, Lynn, what's next? What can we look forward to in 2023, perhaps in in terms of more changes to Iowa's law?
3: Yeah, the state board that's taking a look at this program um, wants to change the name of the uh, the act that allows. Um, the prescription sales from Medical Cannabidiol Act to Medical Cannabis Act to better reflect that this is truly actual medical marijuana. It's not just CBD that's allowed. Um, they're also wanting to increase the number of dispensaries to give better access to patients. Um, and they also want to get rid of the sales tax as well from dispensary purchases.
1: Okay. Lynn Ta, reporter with Axios Des Moines. Thank you, Lynn. Until next time. Yeah, thank you. It's a news buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This year, abortion access uh, here in Iowa, also across the country, uh, bound to be a major theme in our news, uh, just as it was throughout 2022. Uh, Perhaps you caught this yesterday. South Carolina's six-week abortion ban was struck down. That state's Supreme Court ruled that the law, which banned abortion after six weeks in most, most cases, violated the state's constitution, Uh, abortion now legal in South Carolina until around 20 weeks of pregnancy, uh, marking a win for supporters of abortion rights. Now, dozens of cases related to abortion making their way through courts uh, nationwide in 2023 with eyes on state courts uh, where the battle for abortion access uh, has primarily shifted. This due to that U.S. Supreme Court decision last summer striking down Roe v. Wade. Joining us now to explain where Iowa fits in, Katie Aiken, politics reporter for the Des Moines Register. Hi, Katie. Hi, Ben. Catch us up to speed, please, on the state of abortion access in Iowa at the start of this new year.
4: So here in Iowa, we have our own Supreme Court case that we're looking towards Um, Shortly after Roe v. Wade was overturned last summer, Governor Kim Reynolds asked Iowa courts to reconsider a 2018 Iowa law uh, that would ban abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. That law never took effect after it was passed because the courts blocked it. But uh, Reynolds and many Republicans in the state hoped that with the new court rulings from last summer, that law would be allowed to go back on the books and take effect. So we're still waiting to see how that process plays out. The Iowa Supreme Court hasn't taken it up again yet. Uh, But in the meantime, Iowa continues to allow abortion uh, up to about 20 weeks of pregnancy.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the legislative session. That starts, of course, uh, next week. Um, um, what, do, what do we know about what to expect in this area from the GOP-controlled legislature?
4: Yeah, so we know that the Republicans that control the House, Senate, and the governor's office uh, are all eager to see some more restrictive abortion laws, but they have all said that they're waiting for that court uh, case to play out, before they take uh, a step to pass any new laws restricting abortion in the state. So we're still kind of in a waiting game here. They have not been specific about what new laws they might like to see. Everyone is really waiting to see uh, how the Supreme Court decides, and then we'll proceed from there. Uh, Mm -hmm. But if the Supreme Court does decide that the six-week ban from 2018 cannot take effect, we can expect lawmakers to Try a similar law again this year,
1: mm-hmm. but but is it? Are you saying is it's clear that the governor, Governor Reynolds, and the GOP, the Republicans in the legislature, are on the same page in terms of their goals? Whether they can reach them is a different thing, but th- their goals are similar.
4: Exactly, we know uh, for certain that these lawmakers have have spoken about. Their uh, intention to restrict abortion in the state. You know, Governor Reynolds has said many times that she is a pro life governor. She wants to protect life. Um, It just remains to be seen how specifically they're going to be able to do that in
1: Iowa. Uh, Katie, let me ask you about some other news uh, abortion related uh, this week Um, abortion pills, uh, and they've become easier to obtain. This week, the FDA finalized a rule change that broadens the availability of abortion pills to many more pharmacies, including large chains, and also uh, via mail. What can you tell us about how this looks to play out here in Iowa?
4: Yeah, so this week the FDA announced that, you know, it would begin allowing abortion pills to be available through a pharmacy, so you could get a prescription and then pick it up. Previously, those pills were only available at a uh, clinic or a doctor's office. Uh, So that broadens the availability. The FDA also uh, has allowed for those pills to be mailed to patients via telehealth, um, which additionally allows more people potentially to access the pills. Of course, the difficult thing is that every single state has slightly different laws on when abortions are legal, in what circumstances abortions are legal. Um, So that is still something that patients need to navigate. But essentially, it is becoming easier for providers to send out those pills. But a patient can still get in legal trouble in some states if they uh, induce an abortion in themselves that is not legal under state law. So Mm -hmm. it's a complex situation, but the FDA has allowed for the pills to be more readily available in some cases.
1: Mm-hmm. What can you tell us, Katie, about how many abortions are performed in the country, perhaps in Iowa, that are that are medically induced this way?
4: Medical abortions are more common, particularly because they are more prevalent for the early stages of a pregnancy. So if someone is in the first couple weeks, uh, you know, first month or two of their pregnancy, most likely they would have a medication abortion rather than a surgical one, which becomes more common a little further along in gestation. Um, So this is a pretty huge deal because this affects uh, most pregnancies in in Iowa and also in the country.
1: Mm -hmm. Katie Aiken, politics reporter with the Des Moines Register. We look forward to many more conversations uh, about the uh, areas you're covering as the politics reporter for the Des Moines Register in 2023. Thank you, Katie. Thanks so much, Ben. Coming up after a short break, what's it like to be homeless in Iowa in the dead of winter and then have officials evict you from your outdoor camp? We'll find out. And then we travel back 100,000 years to a time when giant ground sloths roamed this little patch of planet we call Iowa today. More to come on this News Buzz edition. I'm Ben Kiefer. Back after a short break.
0: Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics. Treatment for varicose veins and spider veins. Also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning fresh air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: And we're back with this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Still to come later this half hour, we travel back a hundred thousand years to the time when the giant ground sloth roamed this little patch of the planet we call Iowa today. But first, what's it like to be homeless in Iowa in the dead of winter? What's it like to be homeless in Iowa? in the winter, and then have officials demolish your encampment? Uh, we'll find out because uh, the features reporter at the Gazette, Elijah Decius has been covering homelessness here in Iowa. Uh, he's focused on it uh, for a, a number of reports. Uh, Elijah, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I want to focus on your last feature uh, when you describe in detail how a number of homeless people were evicted by the city of Cedar Rapids from an encampment near the Cedar River. First, describe what this camp was like. Who lived there?
0: Um, Really, it depends on who you ask who lived there. It was all types of people. Um, By most accounts, um, you can't get really a firm number, but by most accounts, it's about one to two dozen people um, consistently living there. Um, Throughout the year, the camp sprouted up. Um, on the Sinclair Levee um, near the Cedar River in March, and the city cleared it in early December. Um, There was a certain number of people who lived there consistently, but there was also um, kind of a rotating, um, revolving door with a rotating population um, who would maybe stay a night or two, or they'd um, stay a few nights and then go away and then come back. Um, But it was really people from all different walks of life, people who um, had been homeless chronically, as well as people who were new to homelessness.
1: Yeah, and I imagine in your reporting you've met some of the homeless people in this camp and other camps. And I ask this because, Elijah, it's so easy to put the homeless in a certain category and not think of them as, as real people, um, uh, to, to not think of them as sons and daughters, mothers and fathers. Yeah. I wonder if you could introduce us to one of the homeless you, you may have met and, and got to know a little bit.
0: Yeah, um, that's a great question, Ben. I uh, In my first story, um, and I, I did a little update in my second story on her, but um, I met Mary Sand and her partner, Johnny Ray Delgado. Um, I um, was walked down to the site um, by a homeless advocate who Um, works for Willis Dady. They um, put us in the car and just kind of drove us down. We didn't know where we were going. We just were along for the ride. Um, And they introduced us to some of the folks who happened to be there at the time. Um, So I I met Mary and I sat in her tent for a while and just um, listened to her story. She um, is an Iowa native and she lived in Colorado for a number of years. Um, Eventually made her way back. and I said, you know, Mary, what, you know, they say they're going to clear the camp soon. What are your plans? Where are you going? And um, she didn't know. They were yeah. just praying for a housing miracle um, underneath a dream catcher that they had made that was hanging in their tent. Um, wow. At the time, they had um, a, a corrugated, um, just a real jagged bowl sitting on the floor. And as we were talking, she picked up a jug. Of, I, at first I thought it was bleach because it, it was a, a container that wasn't clear. And then she poured it, and I realized it was um, that very liquidy, thin hand sanitizer that became popular during the pandemic. Um, and she lit it on fire. And that's how she was staying warm as the temperature dipped into the 20s.
1: Oh, amazing. Um,
0: and and that, really, that, that really struck me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Tell us the story. Uh, behind the ev- eviction that happened on December first, which you covered, and as you note in your article, yeah. this isn't the first time the homeless encampment has been cleared. Um, it won't be the last, and, and uh, we we want to, as you do in your article so well, present both sides here because you know complaints uh, you know drive the city to do this. Uh, there are also necessary sanitation and safety reasons uh, for the city acting in way in the way it does. Uh, Tell us what is the story behind this eviction, and what are the what's the controversy surrounding it?
0: Yeah, so I, I mean, I think the controversy is pretty simple. You're um, removing people from a place where they've um, called home for a number of months, even if it's less than ideal. Um, what we would consider less than ideal living conditions. Um, and,
1: and this is this is city land.
0: Yeah, this is city land. yeah. It belongs to the city of Cedar Rapids, and um, camping is not allowed on city land. That's um, uh, one of the city's impetus to to clear land like this. One of the last times they did it was um, uh, in 2015 on this kind of scale. Um, but this camp was um, probably one of the largest they had ever seen. Uh, one of the folks at willis Beatty told me it's the largest he had seen in his four years. Um, the city said they cleared 53 tons of materials from the site. And um, I, we're unclear on whether all of that is, um, you know, possessions and belongings that we saw there, um, how much of it is, you know, waste or refuse, that kind of thing.
1: Elijah, with a minute or two, we have first described the scene in brief uh, of clearing that homeless camp. How did the the people who lived there react?
0: They were devastated. Um, I, I mean, this, this was everything that they had left with them. And when you don't have a home, when you don't have an apartment to go to, um, the possessions you hold take on a much scarcer, um, more endearing value. Um, a a pastor who happened on the scene that day, um, said he kept asking folks, you know, what is the one thing you can save? Because he knew that as the loaders and the various construction equipment were moving everything in their path towards a dump truck that they would likely only be able to save one thing. Um, And one of those things was an American American flag that they gifted to him for helping them that day.
1: And uh, really, to, to get the depth of, of uh, this clearing and, and your reporting, um, you need to read uh, the, the article that uh, you've written here, Elijah, on it um, at the Gazette. Um, you point out police Lieutenant Jeremy Paulson handling many of the clearings, including this one, and trying to make the process as painless as possible um, and, and also in, in conjunction working with city officials. Um, as yeah. we close here, uh, give us an outlook, uh, you point out, it's increasing, homelessness in Iowa, increasing. By how much, what's driving it, and, and what are you watching as you continue to cover the homelessness in Iowa in 2023?
0: Yeah, so this year was the first year that um, the number of unsheltered people in the uh, summer point-in-time counts eclipsed 100, um, and that's uh, about 10 times larger than the number was 10 years ago um it's also um triple what the number was just 3 years ago in July 2019 and by all accounts the number is continuing to go up with no end in sight um and, and a specialist from Willis duty here in Cedar Rapids um estimated in November that the number had increased uh about 50% um just since the July count last year um and he says you know it's going to get worse before it gets better
1: Okay. Elijah Deishis is a features reporter with the Gazette. Really, check out his writing on this. Uh, Elijah, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Ben.
1: It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, let's travel back to Iowa's past, way, way back, long before our little patch on this planet was known as Iowa to an ice age more than 100,000 years ago. Uh, Homo sapiens, we, we were around at that time, but there were also many other creatures that have long since died out, and among them, giant ground sloths. Now, the University of Iowa uh, has some researchers who have pieced together the bones of three ancient giant ground sloths, from that time, found in southwest Iowa. They recently published their findings in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. Kendall Crawford, our western Iowa reporter, has been looking into this. Hi, Kendall. Hi, Ben. This is so exciting. I'm really into sloths. I think you probably are, too. Tell us about the excavation site. Uh, This is near Shenandoah, Iowa, uh, and what was found there?
5: Yeah, so it it is really exciting. Um, Actually, in 2001 is when a bunch of researchers and student volunteers they had so many students involved in this project which is really cool headed to Shenandoah like you said um, to excavate the bones of what is a now extinct giant ground sloth Um, and really they went through two people's properties digging up everything they expected you know to find the remains of one sloth try to get as much as they could from that but ended up actually getting the remains of three uh, giant ground sloths um, which was really cool and when i talked to one of the researchers Holmes sumkin he said that that was really rare to have like a family unit together so after all this digging they actually came away with a lot more than they, they were expecting um, and they were able to research that it's kind of a social unit they found one that's an adult giant ground sloth, one that's uh, a sub-adult or like a teenage ground sloth, and an infant. And so they were really able to look at this species kind of throughout time and try to piece together what their social life was, too, like you said, 100,000 years ago, which is crazy. Yeah,
1: yeah it is. And and we know today surviving are tree sloths relatively small. Now, when we say these are extinct giant ground sloths living on the ground, as the name Um, uh, communicates there. Uh, How big? What does giant mean in this context?
5: Yeah, when we say giant, we mean giant. They were around (laughs) 10 feet tall. Um, and they actually, you know, you, you picture the sloth now, you picture it maybe in a tree moving very slowly, but that, that was not the case with these mammals. They were much too big to be climbing. They actually walked on their knuckles um, and they could weigh up to 3,000 pounds. So it's not not the cute little picture of a sloth you may have in today, but rather it was described to me as kind of ox-sized sloth um, that? that existed. And... They actually became extinct ten thousand years ago, so we haven't seen a big sloth like that in quite a while. So it was very interesting to kind of dig up these bones.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think this excavation site near Shenandoah, Iowa, the the researchers there, along with these bones um, uh, of the three giant ground sloths, uh, d- d- made some other discoveries or some hints about what life was like, what the environment was like on this landscape we now call Iowa 100,000 years ago.
5: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So, you know, in the process of doing this, you're not only trying to, you know, find full skeletons, which is always a goal, but in paleontology, you also want to take you know the microfossils that you find and the sediments around it to kind of understand what the world looked like 100,000 years ago and so um the researchers talked to me about you know taking smaller microfossils like mollusks sea clams um turtles stuff like that and they were able to kind of piece together this image of an ecosystem and what kind of vegetation like animals like the giant ground sloth would be uh, living off of. And so what they found is really interesting is that these animals lived in a period much like the time that we live today. There were woodlands and there were marshes, and that's a lot of what southwest Iowa still looks like. Um, And so, you know, they just got, got to have the opportunity to understand more, what it did look like in the interglacial period for these animals.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I was uh, reading up on these giant ground sloths, and it's interesting. I don't know if you you researched this as well, but th- this particular um, uh, genus, um, uh, Megalonyx. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, taken from uh, the Latin. But it's also Megalonyx uh, Jeffer- Jeffersoni. Now it's mm-hmm. named after our third president. I read it, but do you know, happen to know the story behind that?
5: Yes, um, I do know that that I don't know maybe the story, but I know that behind the name is the fact that Thomas Jefferson was one of kind of the first people to identify uh, this species, which I thought was super cool and really put like this idea of having like, you know, a 10-foot-tall animal with Thomas Jefferson in my mind, which was wild. Uh, Is there more to the story than that? Well, well, just
1: my research here said, you know, this megalonics means great claw, and Jeffersoni is in honor of Thomas Jefferson, our third president. It is because, according to what I read, because he presented at the American Philosophical uh, Society meeting in 1797, the first scientific description of bones of this, what then was just called a great clawed animal, uh, wow. this one found in a Virginia cave. So they, uh, it, it's an interesting story. Speculation: What, you know, these are huge bones. What are they? They were trying to say, is this, you know, uh, what is this animal? And and finally arrived at, at the, uh, an extinct species. So fascinating there. Yeah, I wanted that to cla- is super cool. I wanted to close by asking you, uh, where are these remains? Where will they be kept, and what will they be used for?
5: Yeah, so these are actually going to be kept in the University of Iowa's paleontology repository. Um, and basically, they'll be kept there to kind of be available to other researchers so that they can take a look at these bones and do some of the same kind of testing and research Um if, if other researchers want to come in and see what kind of different, you know, hints that they can draw from the bones, especially because they are this really unique set of a family, which you don't see in a lot of the other findings of this kind of species. It's also one of the most complete uh, collections of the skeleton. So that makes it a really good opportunity to do lots of research. Um, and when I was talking to the collections manager, she pointed out, too, that A lot of times, when you know you preserve these bones, there can be technological advances that come into play, and then down the line, you're able to kind of maybe do more testing that might show Mm -hmm. a little bit more. Um, And so, keeping them and preserving them is super important for that reason.
1: Mm -hmm. Candle Crawford, uh, fascinating work here, reporting on uh, well, the work of University of Iowa researchers piecing together the bones of three ancient giant ground sloths found in uh, southwest Iowa near Shenandoah in uh, 2001, as uh, Kendall said there, Um, recently publishing their findings in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. Kendall, until next time, have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Ben. And that brings us to the end of this very first news buzz of 2023. Uh, All we have to do is uh, groove into the weekend, of course. Before that, wish a Happy New Year to Mark Simmet, IPR Studio One Tracks host. Hi, Mark. Hi, Ben, and Happy New Year to you. Thank you. You have a couple of tunes to, to groove us into the weekend with. What do you have first of all?
6: Yeah, you know, there's always new music coming out, even at the very beginning of the year. Uh, New records expected as the year goes on here. But singles are out right now, I should say, from those forthcoming albums. And the first one I have for you is from the Canadian singer-songwriter Ron Sexsmith, a very uh, acclaimed singer-songwriter, particularly in his native uh, Canada. Maybe not so much here, but he's had a long, distinguished career. He has a new record coming out in February called The Vivian Line. And uh, this is a track titled What I Had in Mind.
2: Just a phase that I was going through. Does not apply himself out here. Never fall in line with the slave all day for minimum pay design. It wasn't what I had in mind. I could never see the relevance of the intelligent of
1: Bit of a story song from Canadian singer-songwriter Ron Sexsmith, one I had in mind from a forthcoming album. Love uh, that uh, pick. Look forward to that album, uh, hearing it on Studio One. Uh, We have time for one more, Mark. What do you have?
6: Well, here's one from a band that uh, have been long-running favorites, uh, not only on Studio One, but uh, public radio stations across the nation, and that's Yola Tango. Uh, They got started in Hoboken, New Jersey in 1984. They've had a long career. And, uh, you know, I saw this online when I was looking up information. They've had, and I think this is an understatement, limited mainstream success. Hmm. Uh, Most people have never heard of this band, although we've played them through the years. They have a new record coming out early in 2023. It's called This Stupid World. And here's a song from that new album, Fallout. (laughs)
1: Fallout is the title of the tune from a fourth Calming album by Yola Tango, the album This Stupid World. Mark, I think a commentary that uh, uh, all of us have had at one time or another after <laughs> certain weeks of news, perhaps this one in mind. I'm not sure. Let's go out with Yola Tango. Uh, Mark, remind us how we can enjoy IPR
6: Studio One. Well, you know, we have uh, music programming Monday through Saturday nights at 7 p.m. with Studio One Tracks. All Access, Saturday afternoons at 1 and Sunday nights at 7. And we're expanding tracks actually now into the, the rest of Saturday afternoon. So you tune in at 1 on Saturday and just keep listening. You'll be good. All right. Very good. River to River today produced by Danny
1: Gear with help from Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. Mark Simmet, have a wonderful weekend. Uh, Thanks for joining us, grooving us into the weekend. Take care. Thanks, Ben. Until Monday, everyone.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.